If I can't die with a broken back, power the fenders, that seems such a nice to time. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Stop looking up inside. Moving out. I'm moving out. Yeah, yeah. Woo-hoo. Uh-huh. Father McKenzie works in the street. He's wanting to be a bartender. He works with Mr. Constantoli on the street. After the medical center. And it's changing as a Rory for a Cadillac. You ought to know by now. You can find by with a broken back. Traffic the powers, the fenders. Seems such a waste of time. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Good luck moving up till I'm moving out. I'm moving out. Mm hmm. Uh huh. Hello, everyone. And have your, everybody get their Swedish drink for the week. Delicious, isn't it? It's wild how those guys just decided uh, we're chill now. The whole Nordic evolution into being, you know, just a bunch of uh, repressed furniture builders after being some of the most psychotic freaks on the world is pretty funny. But, you know, that's how it goes. It's all cyclical. Ideally, you'd have a confluence, you know, people, groups of people coming together towards a common understanding, but probably not going to get that. So today I wanted to talk about a specific thing, and it's been bugging me for a little bit. And it came up right after the uh, East Palestine train crash, and then when they started shooting down all the hobby balloons, which was very funny, and uh, must say, feel proud that I got that one right, that they just started freaking out. I'm the only one, but you know, instead of saying, oh, it's aliens or anything else, or it's a distraction, this is what I'm talking about, distractions, on my specific annoyance, that they just turned up their uh, sensitivity of their instruments and started blowing anything out of the sky that looked weird. And that ended up being a bunch of, uh, you know, the bottle cap society or whatever the hell, their, their weather balloon. But when that happened, a lot of people said, this is a distraction from what's happening in Ohio. They're doing this on purpose. And this is not a 
frame of mind that's confined to any one political tendency. This thing is almost a universal instinct. I remember when Trump was president, there was almost every day there would be liberals saying, whatever you care about right now is a distraction for the fact that Ivan Stroganoff has been indicted by the DOJ for election interference or whatever the fuck. Stop. Uh, uh, keep your eye on the ball. Pay attention to what matters. They're distracting you. And that is a very common uh, refrain, is, is belief that either through our own failure to pay correct attention or because of the machinations of the media or government, we are being distracted from some other thing that's happening somewhere that's more important that if we were paying attention to at the amount that it deserved would cause us to reflect in some way on our, on our condition and move to change it. And the fact is, is that there is something that is being distracted from. There is, in fact, something that every uh, news story, phenomenon, discrete event is a distraction from. But that includes things like the East Palestine train crash, because in the weeks since the dumb balloon hysteria, People have started really paying attention to it. It is no longer being distracted from. You can't argue that it's being distracted from anymore. It is a, a top story that people are paying attention to. And what does that mean? What are they doing with that attention? It is being The event is being slotted into the same narratives, into the same arguments, turned into ammunition for the same worldviews as every other event. The thing that it's distracting from is not an event or a phenomenon. It is a absence. It is a lack. It is a hole in the center of life. And that can mean anything from, you know, uh, God to belief, basic belief in ourselves, our best selves, even existing outside of our uh, basest urges, each other, other people's best selves, uh, and the reality that every event that we're confronted with, every event that we process into part of our understanding of the world is a is being generated, being thrown up by a social order that is organized around absence around a big hole where there should be some kind of collective endeavor, purpose, instead of the fully alienated, isolated individual uh, pursuit of, at this point, mere escape. Not even a flight towards something, but a flight away from something. And that thing is that the gap, that absence, the whole, and everything, every event, every story 
is a distraction from that because the thing itself cannot be spoken of, cannot be turned into discourse, cannot be turned into part of a spectacle because it's the opposite of uh, incident. It's the opposite of event. And if as such, it can't, how are how are you supposed to turn it into discourse? Because discourse is is a narrative around phenomenon, and the thing that we're distracting ourselves from is that emptiness that shapes every event, but is not an event itself. So it is, in fact, yes, distraction. Everything is a distraction, but not because of uh, psyops, not because of uh, uh, media complicity, not even because of our failures as citizens, because the thing itself cannot be viewed. It cannot be talked about. It can only be talked around, and only talked around by discussing the discrete incidents that make up daily life. But those events can only be contextualized by existing structures of political uh, identity, which are in fact, which are themselves built upon this uh, black hole that everything revolves around. So it's a it's it's you can't talk about a black hole. Everything gets absorbed by it and comes out the other end somewhere else. Somewhere that we can't see or know. And so we are left to distract each other and distract ourselves from something that can't be uh, reckon with. And that's nobody's fault. And I increasingly feel like that's the important thing to remember when you're trying to make sense of every horrifying <clears throat> event that crosses a transom is to leech out the need to assign blame and narrativize agency. Because while there is blame and there is agency, that agency and that blame is not what matters to our condition. What matters to the condition is the uh, structural drift and momentum generated by institutions that are fundamentally inhuman and not made up of humans and not made and not driven by human desires conscious or unconscious i did meant know that Descartes was at the battle of white mountain i think i mentioned it in a later episode i think in the next episode we mentioned that
And the reason I think that's important is because what I see and what just makes me despair is an instinct to narrativize horror as the result of uh, of an agenda. Like, oh, they want this to happen, this horrible thing that happened, uh, for X, Y, and Z purposes. And then working backward from that to create a understanding of events. But doing that only serves to fixate on the quest for specific uh, bad actors who must be identified and replaced. As if the system does not select its own executors. But of course, it doesn't really matter, I guess. Nobody's doing anything with any of their knowledge anyway. Uh, all we can do is uh, embody a political point of view through the same collection of consumption choices that we have historically. Because the social mechanisms, the institutions that once existed, no longer do. I guess it does just end up being more uh, aesthetic criticism. Like, oh, you're, you're reacting wrong to what's going on. You're reacting, uh, you should be reacting differently, as if it matters. It doesn't. I'm sorry. Uh, someone's asking about the national divorce. I do think you're going to increasingly see separate regimes uh, coming into being in, in different states. Uh, you already kind of already have that. Like California and Florida have, and, and Texas, like they have dramatically different uh, social policies that their governments, their state governments, uh, support. And that'll just continue to deepen, I think. Uh, that's And then that the conflict that so many people are drooling for, I don't think we'll ever get that because it is there's no, as I said, institutions to take that energy and push it in real confrontation with uh, in the greater structures that have no interest in seeing the United States at this moment pulled apart. Uh, but that energy's got to go somewhere, and it'll go where it has been already going, just in an accelerated pace, people voting with their feet. You're not going to pick up a gun to create a national divorce, but you can get in a, a U-Haul and go to a state that has what you imagine to be uh, a closer reflection of your values in its government philosophy. That's already happening. One of the big reasons that Florida is becoming this reactionary bastion and, and that Ron DeSantis won by such a um, astounding amount relative to his first term victory is that a ton of retired reactionaries decided to get a, go to Florida in the last four years. And they're going to keep doing that. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene showing that she's a complete idiot and a, a completely incapable of understanding what's actually happening. Uh, also said that people from blue states who move to red states shouldn't be allowed to vote for like five years or something like that because they're going to get their icky progressivism all over them. As though the people moving out of blue states to red states aren't largely Republicans who are moving for that reason, among others. 
because a lot of these people, and you have to have this to really buy into a notion that we could have some sort of clean break, believe that blue states are basically made up entirely of liberals and red states are made up entirely of conservatives. There are more Republicans in California than there are in, what, uh, 150 uh, electoral votes worth of red states? I remember when uh, when Beto O'Rourke almost beat Ted Cruz. It turns out that he beat Cruz among native Texans and that Cruz's margin of victory came from transplants, a lot of them from blue states. So that's going to keep happening and accelerating. Uh, what happens at the at the center, what happens with the presidency, which has become this incredibly charged totem of power and domination. That's a separate question. And I honestly do think that the solution, not in the near term, but in the relative medium term, does end up being something along the lines of like a Thai or Egyptian style military regime that will have plurality support for people of all political dispositions because the because the military is the only institution left in American life with bipartisan trust. But yeah, there's not going to be a, a, a civil war. There's not going to be a, uh, a formal breaking apart of the United States in anything in, in the near term or even medium term. Because these release valves still exist. And they're going to just keep accelerating. It's much. It's always much more likely that current trends continue to intensify rather than something new erupts. Now, eruptions do occur. Black swan events do occur. But the uh, realities of American social life militate against the eruption of effective institutions rather than uh, make them more likely. Having two presidents, though, like like Roman consuls, like having two presidents would would help solve things. But yeah, the, the, if you don't want to assign blame, and you don't want to have a rogues gallery of of imagined villains that you can invest in seeing punished, which is really, as I've said many times, the only thing left to gain out of engaging with politics as it exists now, then you do end up focusing on the future and, and, and speculating on what eruptive force will break this deadlock. And a lot of it is, is wish-casting, hoping for rupture, uh, for catharsis of some kind. Uh, but the most likely outcome for anybody who is alive right now is that nothing like that happens in our lifetimes. Which is more horrifying than any apocalyptic rupture that we can conjure on our minds. Which is why nobody wants to believe it. Because it's scarier. We, we, we think, people think, oh, everyone's uh, depressed because they think the world's going to end. 
Not really. If they thought the world was going to end, they would be pretty fucking excited. Anybody see Melancholia? No, the, the, the world's going to end is, is what they tell themselves and what we can socially process because it is more comforting and more basically pleasurable than the unimaginable horror of it just keeps going forever. Now, again, can't keep going forever. Good old second law of thermodynamics, black swans, all that stuff. But in terms of the likely outcome for people now, which is the only reasonable rubric to use, the only thing that isn't fueled by pure neurotic fantasy, continuing onward, but slightly worse over time, is the clubhouse leader for anybody's lived conditions. And because that is the real nightmare. We end up talking about and imagining to ourselves a pleasurable fantasy escape from that. We have to put it in the guise of, of, of a nightmare, of apocalypse, of a hellscape or whatever. But it is actually our deepest... Uh, um, so it's it's our deepest self. It's our balm and Gilead. And it's, it's it, the reason it can't be spoken of is because it asks it, it requires us to ask the question: Well, what do you do? Not what do you await for or plan for. What do you what do you do with this life? But if we assume that these institutions are durable, that question can't really be answered because the reality of these enduring systems is that they strip agency out of human life. We frantically politicize every moment of our lives in the way that we um, experience it subjectively, but our objective daily movements are not the result of frantic political action on our parts. They are instead the at this point, nearly instinctive obeyance of broader capitalist logics and demands. And it's because that's the case that we have to have such a frantically politicized, subjective narrative of our lives. Uh, somebody asked a good question. Uh, somebody says they really enjoyed the hell episode. Thank you. Uh, were there any other se uh, 17th century manias we didn't cover? Uh, the big war ones, of course, were the, the witch craze uh, and uh, the tulips. Uh, but the, the, the religious uh, crazes, like the specific religious movements of the whole post-Reformation area are really fascinating. And uh, we didn't talk about them that much. We talked about the Anabaptists and specifically the Anabaptist uh, seizure of Munster. We talked a little bit about the Mennonites and uh, the separatist groups that would uh, only be able to survive by eventually migrating to the United States. 
uh, all of the Amish style religious communities in America, you know, no, no electricity, riding in a horse, got a big hat, beard. All of those are sects that emerged out of the Anabaptist Reformation. If anybody didn't know that, that's the case. Uh, like the Mennonites, for example, are named after this guy, uh, Mino, <laughs> who was a Anabaptist preacher. Uh, and they were able to, they, they got the message uh, from the Anabaptist massacring that occurred at Munster and the fact that Anabaptists, wherever they went in the cities, got fucking murked by everybody. If you were Catholic, if you were Lutheran, if you were Calvinist, one way or another, you were getting, uh, you were going in the drink, hands behind your back, if you preached Anabaptism in any uh, urban areas. They survived by living in common on lands that were usually the property of some religiously sympathetic landowner, some gentry member who had some sort of sincere religious conversion and then gave their land to people to sort of live in common as. Uh, but even that was not sustainable in the long run, and almost all these groups ended up having to migrate to the United States, where that free real estate allowed them to sustain themselves, and they're still here. The Huguenots also uh, left France and settled in a bunch of places in, uh, in North America. Uh, we mentioned briefly that there's a Huguenot colony in Florida that uh, got wiped out by uh, uh, Philip II's conquistadores. There's one in Brazil. And a ton of them moved to England and, uh, and early North America. But those were not the only uh, sects that emerged out of the Reformation. Uh, a lot of them were uh, antinomian in their character, uh, which is the belief that God's uh, Christ's sacrifice basically means that we have no real reason to obey any earthly laws uh, or moral laws that don't feel right. Because if we are saved, then why can we not do as we feel? And like with many of the emergence religious movements that came out of the Reformation, what you saw, see here is uh, the Reformation is basically taking Christendom and splitting it like the, like Oppenheimer split the atom and creating this huge explosion of social energy outward. As all of these contained truths and verities that had held together a feudal social order blew up and people were relieved almost instantaneously uh, in terms of, you know, like social historical timescales from these mental fetters. And they started asking a lot of questions. Now, the Reformation we got, the Magisterial Reformation of Luther, was made up of those people who start who were in a social position, a class position, that motivated them to ask questions that didn't disrupt traditional power structures. Forgetting religious ideas, power structures, class domination matrices, like Luther. But a lot of other people, people who uh, found themselves in different class situations, not the patrons of, of uh, feudal princes, but rather you know, peasants, uh, laborers, itinerant preachers, 
they started asking questions about the whole social order. And the antinomian response to uh, the Reformation, hey, all these rules and shit are uh, bullshit. All this is is a, a fraudulent imposition on God's chosen and saved children. And what they are what they are expressing there, what the antinomian impulse is, is to reclaim the social vision of the heavenly kingdom that Christianity is supposed to impose, which is without class rule, without class domination. That is that is communism. And in that order, there would be no constraining laws against expressions of the heart, because the heart's expression would, in that social context, be purified. The things that make us need laws to keep us from doing harm to each, ourselves and each other arise from uh, the warping of our sincere intentions towards acts that make up for our alienation in some way, that make us feel a solve, a distraction from our sense of guilt or anger and resentment. Whatever combination that we uh, have accrued in our class position. And that's what creates social pathology. But the antinomian response says, no, this isn't true. This is, uh, it does come from the same instinct that the Anabaptists spoke of to, to actually make, hey, if we are all saved, we are all believers, then why the hell can't we live that way? And the answer was, because we have the power, we have the money, we have the social infrastructure to support our rule among enough people who will, who will agree to wield swords on our behalf and write books on our behalf and staff churches on our behalf, we get to deny you that. And they did. So there were a bunch of groups that uh, emerged out of the Reformation, and then later, after the Thirty Years' War and the English Re English Civil War, uh, that are like, you know what? Uh, I don't have to follow any rules. Fuck you. Uh, I get to do whatever I want. Uh, and that included free love. That included... Uh, not following religious dietary and and uh, and behavioral restrictions of any kind. I'm trying to think of some of the specific ones. There was a group during the English Civil War, because you have the, uh, oh, the Ranters, I believe they were called. That's it. We don't get to talk about them. We talk about the English Civil War in future episodes, but the uh, Ranters were one of these groups that emerged out of the uh, religious ferment of the English Civil War. 
because you got the levelers who are largely politically minded, uh, the diggers who fuse the millenniary religiosity with uh, with a economic critique of class society as such, and then you have the ranters. And they did, guess what they did? They, they ranted. That's right, they ranted. Uh, more mellow and richer, this is very important, are the Quakers. They don't need to rant, right? Because they can quake. The, 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 the Quakers are uh, the ancestors of our secular liberals. They're, that they urge for religious ecstasy as I said, it comes from this desire to heal the, the, the wounds of living in a class society. But those wounds are felt differently depending on your different classes' position. Uh, a Quaker like, likely has done well by, by early emergent capitalism. Uh, they were relatively well off as a group. Pennsylvania exists because William Penn, a prominent Quaker's dad, had loaned the English crown so much money that Charles II was like, look, will you take this giant chunk of North America to uh, write off my family's debt to you? And he said, deal. And that's how we got Pennsylvania. So they could quake, right? They could sit in their pre uh, uh, Society of Friends meeting halls in silence until somebody felt the urge, and then they would just start quaking. Now, if your experience of emergent capitalism in 17th century England, which also is the, the, the fucking nut-hugging cl climax of the Little Ice Age uh, environmental in disruptions, quaking isn't going to be good enough. But this is the most important part. Neither, the Quakers were not called Quakers by each other. They were called this, they called themselves friends. Quakers is a, a sort of dismissive nickname. Look at them shaking. Same thing is true of the ranters. Name that by the conservative establishment that sought to turn any principled opposition to the order as such into uh, some proto version of mental illness. But my God, like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you rant? Wouldn't the little ranting make sense to you living in these conditions? Isn't that rant the cry of like the human spirit as opposed to the, the death of it that is benoted by meek acquisition to what? The Church of England's genocidal vision of death to the imperial other and total immiseration and protestation of a proletarianized English population to be ruled over by this uh, coven of joyless merchants.
Uh, I, stop me, please, if anyone, if they've heard me talk about this before, but I think it's very interesting. So talking about the Quakers, right? These are the relatively well-off, but still spiritually disquieted religious dissenters who don't want to be part of the Church of England's project, uh, but still want to hold to an idea of themselves as uh, Christians and in living in a world blessed by Christ's sacrifice. Like, they want to believe that. And it's very hard to do that in the conditions of the mid-17th century, when it is uh, uh, the bloody emergence of a new social order that squares the circle of feudalism, trying of the feudal contradictions, that it, it eliminates the feudal contradictions that were that had caused the crisis of the 17th century by creating this new godless sphere, a social place where God has been evacuated. Now, not God's will. God's will is seen in the market, but not, but the market is not as it would have been understood by previous generations, a socially constructed space that humans are responsible for it is a zone where human will is evacuated and replaced by uh, the machinations of nature, which at that point, before the scientific revolution, would be understood to be God's will. So God's will will be revealed in this alienated market space because the Calvinist God is a God who is fundamentally unknowable And unrecognizable, a, a, a alien. Like there has to be some unknowability, uh, uh, some some sublime, transcendent feature to God, right? Obviously, all notions of God have that imbued in it. But that's not the only thing that God can be. A social God, a God of a world where everything is inhabited, every transaction is inhabited by human agency. then God can be uh, understood in some way to be human, right? Because God's will is the re result of human actions. You have acts of God, but most acts are humans reacting to nature and through that expressing God's will. The 17th century capitalist space that emerges has to have a social logic, a religious logic, to make sense of what is necessary for capitalism to function, which is to allow for the sort of social, um, uh, a degree of social coercion that would have been previously unimaginable because of the amount of social will that would have gone into doing it would not have been sustainable. But it's because the actions of the market are not human will that we get to carry them out with such horror. We get to create in England, for example, a free market in rents that see landowner, uh, renters and tenants dispossessed, kicked out to live on the fucking roads, made into beggars. Now, the market was always there, of course, but previous iterations of Christianity required 
some scapegoat. Jews were essentially, Jews as a category in European society are created to be the sin eaters for a Catholic world that understands social interaction and market interactions as being the actions of Christians and the need to, for example, have interest, to lend at interest, which is the engine of the entire goddamn thing. Debt is the engine of the thing. And debt is understood in traditional uh, tribal-based religious conceptions of a, of a social totality that Christianity is an emergent form of, In that kind of world, debt accumulated over time must be destroyed or else it fundamentally undermines the social order. Unless there's someone who can collect the vented social conflict and alienation. And that is this group who cannot, who are not allowed to till the land, who are not allowed to make their life from the soil. They have to live entirely in the market, but because they're not Christians... It allows us to stabilize our social order. But that can only that system can only accommodate X amount of market actions. But the crisis of the 17th century and before the crisis really of the post-Black Death era can only be solved finally by breaking open that notion of Christianity and Christendom and replacing it with a notion of Unknowable strangers interacting in a, a desacralized space. This is hugely psychically traumatizing to people. People who were brought up in one world being thrust almost overnight into another. And in England, the, one of the big things that resolved that tension is the people who had the hardest time dealing with it left the country. They went across the ocean to try to make something else elsewhere. Eventually, it got too much to even contain that, and you had the English Civil War. The social, it can no longer vent out, it has to go up. But what these people who were fighting, in a lot of cases, to resist the imposition of capitalism, as in the way that their lives had been changed because of it, ended up uh, totalizing it. because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were building. They were operating from one set of assumptions that was being pulled out from under them. And then when the war ends, the people who have, the people who are making money in the situation, but whose spiritual guilt, their sense of, their felt sense of alienation from their fellow man, their fellow Christian, uh, was too great. They became Quakers. They quaked. But sometimes quaking isn't enough. So they tried to come to America. And they uh, and William Penn founds Pennsylvania, which originally, theoretically, could have gone the entire way to the Pacific Ocean. Because uh, the grant that Charles II gave to William uh, Penn was, uh, two, was all the space in North America between two uh, uh, longitude lines or latitude lines, the, this, this one, the vertical one. No, not the vertical one, the horizontal one, I'm sorry. I'm stupid. What's the horizontal one? It's like stalactites and stalagmites. I can never figure this out. 
Latitude lines? Yes, latitude. Okay. I think it was the 48th and the 40th. Between the 48th uh, and the 40th latitude lines, William Penn got all the land. And theoretically, man, he could have gone into to pe 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 uh, the Pacific Ocean. Turns out not because nobody had any idea at that point how big North America was really. And as soon as it was revealed, all that stuff broke down. But like Pennsylvania originally was supposed to just keep shooting out uh, to the west. So that's a huge chunk. And realistically, what that means is uh, 48 to the 40th until the Appalachian Mountains. Until you hit the place where it becomes difficult to settle, right? Where the amount of uh, effort that goes into it uh, becomes not worth it relative to the potential gains. Uh, and that, and the Appalachian Mountains become the first sort of bottleneck of the North American uh, colonial experience. Now, over time, as people keep coming to North America and population locally keeps growing, and it grows very fast, in New England uh, specifically, you have this huge explosion in fertility uh, at a time in the rest of Europe when populations are being destroyed. And that extends well into the, uh, the 17th, 18th century. And of course, people are still coming this whole time. And eventually that builds up enough energy to push past these boundaries, these national boundaries. Now, originally the British did not want that to happen because they were the ones who had to spend money to garrison those mountain passes in the middle of nowhere and supply them to keep these fucking colonists happy and not killed by the natives and securing their trade trade routes and everything. But they're not getting nearly enough of that trade to be worth it as a value proposition. So there is the Proclamation of 1763, which fixed the uh, Appalachian Mountains as the limit of colonial uh, incursion into North America. Now, I would argue, I don't, I think others have argued that this is the root of, this is the root of the American Revolution. It's not the Stamp Act. It's not uh, the fucking tea duties or whatever the fuck. Not a tea tax, by the way. People love to say it was a tea tax. The uh, Boston Tea Party was a reaction to a change in uh, tea trade that would have probably brought down the price of tea in North America. But it would have brought it down at the expense of the merchant cartels of Boston that were the clearinghouses of imported tea. Because at that point, as a way to reorganize their uh, uh, imperial, intra-imperial trade with India, where all this tea was made, uh, the English state took over control of the, the, those pro those uh, privately chartered public-private partnership type companies that were doing the uh, that were actually facilitating and, and uh, generating the the inter-imperial uh, and and between England and other countries trade. All that tea coming from England uh, from India was going to go through at clearinghouses in England and then being sent uh, to America, a rationalization and a efficient and a um, of the process that increased efficiency and therefore the cost of this of maintaining this network that England was sick of paying. So it was an attempt 
to make the empire as such run more efficiently. And that would have included cheaper tea prices for people in New England. But the local merchants of Boston, they got all their money by tacking on uh, their percentage for the, uh, for their service of dealing with all of these different complicated levels of trade. The simplifying the process cut into their nut. That's why you have the Boston Tea Party. But anyway, so you have this conflict emerging between the interests of the empire as such and the interests of local powers. Now, just like the, the, the Boston Tea Party is a perfect example of this. But the chief one, the chief contradiction, the conflict that could not be dealt with through any discrete change to colonial policy was the fucking proclamation of 1763. Because the imperative to continue expropriating native lands to facilitate population uh, uh, growth, but most importantly, the fortunes of land-speculating elite families like George Washington, who was the biggest land speculator in early North America. If there was a limit to how far uh, colonial incursions into North America were, that meant there was a limit to the amount of land that could be speculated upon. Uh, George Washington sunk huge chunks of money into land in the Ohio uh, 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 Western Reserve. Or, I mean, I believe, no, the Ohio, in the central Ohio, the Ohio River Valley, west of the Appalachians, with the expectation that eventually this was all going to be filled. Now, at some point, there might have been an equilibrium reached between the empire and the colonists where they said, okay, fine, we'll open the door, but only this much, right? That might have been possible, but not in the world we live in. In the world we live in, the need for the British to secure their colonies, like literally secure their borders, secure the costs associated with them, was always going to be more than the specific parochial interests of North American elites in expanding the border, expanding the barrier. Because, it, because it's important to remember, the proclamation of 1763 is just before the seven years, is just at the same time, uh, uh, is literally uh, the same year that the Seven Years' War ends. When Canada is taken from France and England and Prussia beat the alliance of Austria and France, both uh, in, in Europe, North America, and also in India. This is where the, the French are kicked out of India. Now, this is a consolidating, uh, this is the consolidation of a dominant English empire that just beat their continental rivals. But they have not dominated them. They're still in this incredibly important contest. And their eyes are on that prize. They will never value the lands of the of the of Ohio uh, River Valley and the Western Reserve as much as local elites in North America will. And since they have the ability to organize politically and militarily as 
colonial elites who are distanced from the metropole, they will be able to take the advantage of that to secure domination of North America. And to speak to this conflict, here's another conflict within that conflict, and the reason I started talking about this in the first place, to bring it all back, God. Sometimes I do even amaze myself. We have Pennsylvania, which has the Appalachians sitting right there in the middle of it, or in, the, in the western part. It go, the middle is, is, is still farmland, but as soon as you get to southwestern Ohio, it turns into mountains. So William Penn wants Pennsylvania to be a model for Christian living. Yes, we will have the market because, hey, let's not get ourselves. We're all good. We're all good at it. And we have the capital. But because we're going to all be good Christians, right? Good quaking Christians. We're going to impose a social order that tames capitalism. And they try that in good old Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love in fucking Greek. Can you, could you, could you just die? Could you just get stabbed in the heart? So achingly beautiful, the hope. By the way, Georgia, same deal. Georgia, also a religious experiment in communal living that ends up becoming the place where the indentured servants go because they have to literally bribe people to come. Like, hey, we will, we will take care of your debt if you come here and actually grow some fucking crops. And as soon as they get there, they're like, cool. Uh, uh, I would like to take all these Indians land, please. And then the whole thing is over. So you got Philadelphia, the merchant city, the urban area. But you've got all this land. Who's going to fill the land? Well, Quakers, as I said, they don't really farm. That's not their deal. They, they don't get their hands dirty. They haven't for a while now. These people, the social structure that they emerge from is an urban one, an urban merchant society. They come to North America. They want to be merchants in the city. Some of them farm, but there's so much land. And you have basically free emigration from Europe to the United States, to, to the early colonies at this point. Someone somewhere is going to hear the dinner, dinner bell ring. And who it was was originally Germans. There's a, a, a big uh, suburb, I believe, of Philadelphia called Germantown. There's a town in uh, German. There's a town in Pennsylvania called uh, motherfucking. There's a town in uh, Pennsylvania literally called King of Prussia. Oh, Germantown's a neighborhood. I bet it was a suburb at one point. Back when we're talking, I bet it was a suburb. Want to put money on that? And this is also where we get those Anabaptists I was talking about. Mennonites, Amish. They're all in central Pennsylvania. This is the first place that Germans in any kind of significant numbers come to settle North America. And they will go in basically a Western way along that band and to take up the... Uh, the upper, a whole mid and upper Midwest from, uh, so you have, it's broken up by the Appalachians. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but once you get to the other end of the Appalachians, it's, it's a triangle from Cincinnati to Milwaukee to St. Louis. The Dutch, interestingly enough, uh, who do emigrate to the United States, uh, they go from uh, upstate New York 
west to uh, Western Michigan. Western Michigan's got a ton of Dutch in it. That's where Paul Schrader is from. A lot of Calvinists in that country. But everything south of that really is this big swath of Germans. The first efflorescence of that is in the lands around Philadelphia. In fact, Ben Franklin was actually super fucking uh, bigoted against Germans. He would 100%, Ben Franklin would 100 I got to tell you guys, he would 100% be a, a build-the-wall guy. Because at that point in Pennsylvania, the closest thing to an other were these German farmers surrounding the city. And he fucking couldn't stand them. <sighs> he would complain that they were swarthy and that they were like reducing the, the, uh, the light complexion of the American people. He even sarcastically uh, re uh, recommended that the official uh, language of the United States be German. And the, and the official language of the Continental Congress, rather, or the Constitution, be German. Because there's we might as well, since there's so fucking many krauts around here. Um, so these Germans show up, and they settle the immediate uh, areas surrounding uh, Philadelphia and start doing the work of, of building yeoman self-sufficiency, the American dream. And they're doing it in relative harmony to the native peoples, because by this point, they had been pushed out of all this territory. Philadelphia, uh, uh, the Pennsylvania uh, Quaker leadership prided themselves on their good relations with the Native Americans, and it's because they showed up precisely at the area where all the dirty work had really already been accomplished. So they thought, we can negotiate with the Indians as brothers, too. We have these wonderful market mechanisms to allow us to work with and trade with these Indians. It'll be great. And the Germans initially fit into this. Okay, even though guys like Ben Franklin complained about it, they were providing, you know, uh, material for the urban cities. They were facilitating market transactions. They were helping, and they weren't fucking things up with the Indians. But people keep coming, right? And different people come at different times. And a lot big thing that determines whether when you come is when you have the resources to make the trip. So you have these Germans who are able to save up people who can't who are scraping at the margins in Germany agriculturally but who can put them together the money to go across the ocean and buy some land around Pennsylvania uh, Philadelphia first you got like the rich the rich quakers who built the city then you get the poorer but still self-sufficient germans who show up eventually all you've got is the 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 open unspoken for land is now in that shitty mountainous southwest which is filled with native americans who hunt there and consider it their land in one way or another and where uh, you can't really grow anything in any large amount because it's all fucking rocky. It's all mountainous. You can maybe do self-sufficient agriculture, but you can't do large-scale surplus-producing commercial agriculture. You just can't do it. You can't put together the land to make it work. So who wants that land? Anybody with any money is getting, putting it somewhere else. Eventually, the people who come to settle that territory are the Scotch-Irish border reavers who lived in the no man's land, first in the no man's land between England and Scotland in the Middle Ages, and who existed as basically self-sufficient clans at constant war with the, both uh, royal, royal houses uh, and each other, because this liminal zone had no sustained legal authority. So you create this warrior culture in the middle of feudalism. And when the English colonize Ireland, these guys are incredibly useful. They are packed up and sent to Ulster to 
settle the plantation area where all of the rowdy uh, Scotch nobles and their loyalists had been killed and driven from the country. Like Ulster, when the English came and during the early era of the, the early Tudor days of uh, English colonialism in Ireland, Ulster was the most Catholic and the most Irish part of Ireland. Because by that point, there were a ton of old English nobles in Ireland. They were Catholic, and they ended up staying Catholic, and they went to war with England eventually. Uh, but they were from English and Norman extraction. Ulster was Irish, like going back to the, 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 the Danes showing up, Irish, as opposed to English Catholic uh, aristocracy. And they were expropriated for resisting the imposition of English colonialism and replaced by uh, merchant, or I'm sorry, um, uh, 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 Episcopalian, uh, Anglican landowners, landlords, and then these smallholders from the Scotch, uh, the Scots border area. These become the Scotch Irish. And they settle this space between the natives and the colonists. Eventually, once we get to the, the uh, Appalachians, they are transferred there. They're not going to get rich up there, but they might be able to live by their own terms in exchange for being the end of the spear of the colonial experience. Because remember, we're not doing this through the kind of mechanisms of direct uh, military domination that later generations of uh, colonialism will give us. This is still being built in its nascent stage. Capitalism has not yet, has not yet revolutionized uh, and rationalized the state yet. You still have to depend on private actors in a lot for, to mobilize military force and private motivations. In this case, the motivation of the Scotch-Irish to be self-sufficient in their own way. And that means they'll put up with a lot more poverty because that is historically what they have had in these in their roles, away from any concentrations of capital or surplus. And they'll be able to sustain themselves on the land. But they're going to have to fight the Indians. And fight them, they do. And you get this conflict between the Quaker government in Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania citizens in the southwest of the country, who are just going Manson family and all the native tribes. They're going in and they're getting ear, uh, ear necklaces and scalp pelts. Because that's what they do. That's what they did to each other in the Scotch-Irish border. It's what they did to the Irish in Ulster. It's what they do. They're America's Cossacks. Only you don't have to give them, you know, barracks and a salary like you'd have to give the Cossacks. Because this is North America and there's all that unspoken for land, you can say the land that you can keep from Indians with your own Bowie knife and your own uh, squirrel rifle, you can keep. And they go about trying to keep and expand their lands. And that means they come into conflict with the local tribes and that means they start killing the hell out of them. And the, the local the Pennsylvania elite are freaking out. They're like, what's happening? What are you people doing? We're trying to have, we're trying to have a city of brotherly love here. And the Scotch Irish say, fuck you. 
we're the ones who have to live with these fucking savages and we're going to do with them what we have to do. And it ends up leading to like civil insurrection in, in Southwestern Pennsylvania. And one of the most poignant moments from that, if anyone's read End of the Myth by Greg Grandin, a book I've recommended many times on this show, he talks about this amazing anecdote. Uh, there was a, uh, there was a colonist in this area uh, who saw his family massacred. He was German, by the way. This is like one of the Germans. This is not one of the Scotch-Irish. He sees his family massacred by natives, and then he and his uh, indentured German servant, because a lot of these Germans were able, only able to make the, the journey to North America by uh, indenturing themselves to someone for the to pay for the transfer. His indentured German servant, they go out to the local natives and they just go in and kill everybody. They, like I said, they 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 take La Bianca, the local uh, Indians they can find. And the local authorities eventually arrest him and his manservant, and they put him in jail, a local a local jail, and a lo- uh, and a group uh, like a, a a informal militia of local Scotch Irish hill people called the Paxton Boys mobilize to break him out of jail, and there's nothing the government can do about it. And that guy and his manservant end up going to Tennessee, where he becomes one of the biggest landowners in the state and a big slave owner, too. Uh, and the, 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 punch, the punchline to that story that I think is what makes it so delightful, and one of the many little pearls that Grandin puts in that book that are so fun to get to, uh, is that the indentured servant who did all the killing with him and was arrested with him and all that, was, I believe, the great-great-grandfather of Dwight Eisenhower. He was Eisenhower. Of the Eisenhowers. There's a lot of those in Brandon. Like, the fact that the first uh, border fence with Mexico was built with barbed wire that came from the Manzanar Japanese internment camp. Wow. The fact that the first uh, patent issued in the United States was for a device that would make slaves work harder somehow. So many amazing uh, moments. Anyway, all of that is to say, this is why I am a historical materialist. You look at all these people responding to capitalism's emergence by trying to change their relationship to uh, capitalism from a spiritual point. I am going to be a capitalist, but I'm going to be a different type. And they would even go to the lengths of trying to remake capitalism on virgin soil. Oh, yeah, it's not working here in England, but we could make it work on a blank page. And they try, but the the, the mechanisms as they come into being bring into, uh, they, they, they become winces pulling people, especially in North America. Uh, out of their social relationship with one another, and then back into new social relationships that are determined by the class structure of capitalism. And so that means everybody ends up being pushed back into uh, the relationship that they were seeking to flee. That's true of all of the 
I think, sincere religious attempts to resettle America and, re and redeem Europe, basically. The American Nations, that's a good book. But yeah, what we have in America and have always had are these accretions of class rule and elite power that are geographically uh, determined. New England, the Upper South, the Mid-Atlantic uh, Puritan, or uh, the Mid-Atlantic commercial centers. And they create around them centripetal uh, or what's the word? Concentric, concentric circles of economic activity pulled towards the central spoke. And that capillary action builds social institutions. Society is reproduced. People keep coming in from outside. They keep being born inside. They build things. They build houses. They build markets. They build ships. They build wagons. And they need material to do that. And they pull it from around the world. And they eat. And they wear clothes. They All of these things create these distinct concentrations. And what the U.S. Constitution is, is, is a truce with all of them to accept, like, look, we will not be able to create overnight a centralized capitalist machinery in the United States. Because that would mean dispossessing some of you at the expense of others. The same way that... the. Uh, uh, the colonies in North America were dispossessed by the decisions of London in its imperial war with the rest of Europe. They fought to prevent that from happening, so they wouldn't let it happen again. They had all these restive workers and pro proto-proletarians and small farmers who had a vested interest in overthrowing these rules of power or these rules of class and these social structures, and who thought, a lot of them, that the American Revolution would accomplish that fact and sought to make it do so, but their vision, what they were defending, is still land ownership. And that means that they were never going to have a real conflict with capitalism as such. And it eventually would overthrow them and we create this centralized uh, concentration that still bought out local power. That's the important thing. Local power stayed in charge but they lost agency. They kept money at the expense of agency. And that is the dynamic in every concentrating uh, dynastic state in Europe and the way that capitalism replaces that, move, that uh, movement. Local power is not annihilated. It is bought out because it's cheaper to do that. And at some point, they'll take it, especially if you, have to, if you fight them a little bit and wrap them on the nose, like the American Civil War, for example. And that's what we still have are these regional structures of power. And now they are emerging within them, as will eventually have to happen everywhere, particular and conflicting social orders. Like, because the United States is a situation of total uh, endemic psychosis, because everybody is invested in a system, capitalism in the United States, that is, with every action of it, stripping them of their humanity, but they still believe in it. Everyone does. And because they do, they cannot confront reality. They have to confront a fantasy. They have to 
create a spectacleized induced psychosis and then live in it. Like they build a matrix, a fantasy matrix to live in. That means that you get this cultural uh, schizogeneticist or a schizogen when you get two social orders that are next to each other define themselves by opposition to each other. We are us because we don't do that. Now we have that in America of the rival uh, regional power structures uh, expressed by like suburban uh, uh, professionals on one hand and local capital holders on the other. Credentials versus mortgages, basically. Schismogenesis, that's it. And because we cannot confront the reality underneath that undergirds the fantasy that we're invested in, because to do so would be to abolish ourselves, because our identity is wound up in it, that means we have to press forward to annihilation. And the only things that are preventing us are the persisting institutions that have to channel political desire and away from actual uh, fundamental change. Thing is, though, at this point, those institutions are being undermined by their own action. That is why we can imagine a crisis endpoint to this. And I think that, as always, those ruptures must be assumed to be real because they can be imagined. But that, that does not mean that it can be imagined in our lives. Not collectively. I would argue maybe individually. Maybe we all do see the apocalypse. Not in a bad sense of dying and being annihilated, but in the good sense of the uh, unveiling, because that's what apocalypse means. The unveiling of reality. And what, the, and what is unveiled is that the distinction between you and God is illusory. It was always not, it was never real. And all of the, the, the uh, pain that we felt fighting for things and fighting to maintain and advance an idea of ourselves it was necessary to move us through time and space as like nodes within a greater consciousness, but it is not bad or good. It's not to be punished or rewarded. It is necessary. And that all that is left is to be reunited. And that experience, subjective experience of that reuniting is perceived by the individual brain in terms that it can understand. It is a universal experience translated into a particular individual experience. Because it is the realization that, oh, I couldn't confront this reality in my life because it means if these antagonisms aren't real, then I am not real because I am only made up of my antagonisms. And because all value that I have all positive good values are associated with me as a discrete entity. I have to maintain them even in the face of annihilation. And, but the thing is, I think that that, um, that refusal to confront reality is only sustainable as long as we are alive. But the movement towards death is one where those illusions are 
very quickly perhaps, but dramatically stripped away, leaving only bare uh, existence, which is then recontextualized, I think, uh, towards away from apocalypse as annihilation, as a uh, coded bad thing, but towards a subjectively experienced annihilation that is felt as whatever our buried mind associates with the actual good. The fully totalized conception of good without any of its contradictory and uh, uh, misery-inducing libidinal elements that are inextricable from the experience of embodied carnal humanity. So I think everybody does get the apocalypse, but we never will get it collectively. Not in this world. There might be others where we're closer. I think that the experience of subjective life is one of moving from experiences. Not necessarily within one uh, time, but among all times. Anyway, much to consider. I hope some of that made sense. Talking out loud here again. So that means the answer to the question, why go forward if everything is doomed? It's because it all works out for you and by definition for everyone, either individually or collectively, or in my opinion, both simultaneously, the one being the other. And the only difference being in what time and place an individual mind encounters experientially the unfolding of that reality. All right. Oh, there's a good one right before I leave. What was the safest place in Europe to live in the 30 years war? Uh, the Dutch Republic. Uh, it's very funny. They were one of the most active participants in the whole thing. In fact, the 30 years war was only part of the greater 80 years war between the Dutch and the Spanish. But especially by the time the 12 years truce ends, the Dutch Republic, the United Provinces, is fully away, uh, separate from the front lines, which are largely being fought in the Dutch Netherlands, or I'm sorry, in the uh, Spanish Netherlands, Belgium. But even where there is conflict, it's a far away from the biggest, most wealthy uh, province, Holland. And within it, the commercial capital of Amsterdam. There's a reason that this is called the Dutch Golden Age. All the world's treasures flowed into Amsterdam. And these guys turned it into art, architecture, uh, a religious conception of the self that emphasized doing good works towards becoming a good person, but still kept God at an arm's length. This is an Arminianism that became a secular liberalism. And why? Because they experienced the war as a transaction, as a series of transactions. It was blood-soaked murder in the in the in the uh, in the middle of in, in the middle of Europe. It was colonial slaughter in North America. It was uh, enslavement 
and misery in the slave trade that these guys created. But in Amsterdam, it was a series of civilized interactions in nicely appointed rooms next to flowing serene canals. And so if you were one of these people with a little bit of, of uh, a little bit of gelt, a few a few guilders to, to rub together, you made money hand over fist. Every colonial venture came up roses. Uh, a, a good thing to put put money on would be privateering. Uh, uh, invest in a privateer expedition to the Caribbean. The, the the Dutch were eating the fucking Spanish's lunch in the Caribbean. Every other week they'd be jacking their uh, their hard stolen silver. Uh, in the early years of the, uh, in the middle of the, once they resume conflict in the Caribbean, the Dutch take the entire yearly treasure fleet of the Spanish from S S Peru, from South America. It's just, there's money to be made. There's money to, all this, all these, uh, uh, Eastern spices fucking are coming into the markets. You're getting a taste of all of it. The, the, you're trading in India. This is all incredibly uh, uh, lucrative. Buy some land in Lorton. Uh, in if if you're sick of the city, buy some land in New Amsterdam and become a patroon. The patroons were the latifundists of the uh, upstate New York and the Hudson River Valley. Uh, the Roosevelt's people. They uh, had huge trunks of land that they controlled uh, in the in the upstate New York, and they used it to wield extensive political power. And uh, guys like John, uh, Martin Van Buren actually emerged to challenge them from below, because like Martin Van Buren was the son of a, a tavern keeper who was a uh, tenant on a patroon uh, holding, uh, and he but he was a smart guy who like read the law and and, and became a politician, and he organized all the other smart young uh, middle class hustlers amongst the uh, Dutch and English uh, middle classes and had them all write to each other, committees of correspondence to create this uh, Albany Regency that wielded power in New York. But it only did so by allying strategically with Southern slave owners. So at every point, you're in some sort of class conflict in the domestic context, but then in America, you get to do class, class, class co uh, collaboration with a different ruling class. So like in... Virginia, guys like Martin Van Buren would have been absolutely in conflict with the uh, the planter elite. They would have been Whigs, and they were Whigs, uh, or Federalists, rather, at this point. Uh, uh, John Quincy Adams voters, let's call them. Uh, but in the New York context, they are Democrats and allied with the planter aristocrats, because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Anyway, I feel like this has been a good, I, I feel like there's a kernel of something here in this talk, specifically about North America. I really want to do a, a, a graphic novel about the, uh, how, how capitalism emerges, because I feel like what I'm always talking around are, uh, are models, and it's hard to articulate them 
in words. I feel like they would do better as, uh, as symbols. This is all me trying to get towards going from this, you know, ranting gibberish into a phone type expression of self to a more rigorous artistic one. But I have to fight against my own sloth, my own laziness, my own contentedness in uh, placidity. So uh, here's to me continuing that fight. Bye-bye.